0: Politics should be accessible to everyone. And in our country, for so long, it has been traditionally for cisgendered, wealthier, white, straight men.
1: Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Tell. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing For its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. Let's get right to it. I'm very excited to talk to our guests. Let's welcome Marty Gould Cummings. Marty, welcome.
0: Hi. How is are you? Good to see you. Good Hi. to
1: see you. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me on this. It's Monday, Monday night.
1: Yes, it is Monday. We all tend to lose sight of the days. Speaking yeah. of which, how are you since what? has been almost a year. Where were you? How are you through this whole pandemic? Were you working on something? What's going on?
0: Yeah, I mean, the last year has been rough. I can't believe it's been a year in this. There does feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but there's so much work that still needs to be done, right? You know, I'm a gig worker who works in nightlife and theater, and I know you all know a lot about theater, and our industry, the theatrical industry and the nightlife industry has been like completely decimated, and that doesn't only affect actors and musicians, but it affects wardrobers, costumers, stagehands, ticket takers, ushers, bathroom attendants, porters, bartenders, waiters, hotel workers, taxi drivers, baristas, street vendors, carpenters, it goes on and on. This impacts so many industries. Having theater shut down impacts so many industries. And so while, yes, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, yes, vaccines are coming slowly, but we need to be looking towards how are we reopening safely And how are we reopening in a way that's going to put money from the tourist revenue from this back into the pockets of the people, not the necessary industry, the billion-dollar producers, but the people who have struggled for a year, many people who haven't had access to unemployment because of their immigration status. You know, a lot of the people who work in the nightlife industry behind the scenes might be undocumented. So they've had no relief whatsoever. So we need to make sure that we're prioritizing people in this. So it's been a long year, but this recovery is going to take a while, even with this light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm excited to have different ways of being creative streaming services like this reaching people in a new way yeah it's been quite the year
1: (laughs) yeah you know the other thing too i think is so important is so many of our actor and artist friends didn't have enough days for them to get health insurance so so many of my friends just lost their health insurance and nowhere to go don't have the money to pay eight nine a thousand dollars a month for health insurance when they lose it through their union Yeah, my husband's a union artist, so we get that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I love all the people that you just represented by talking about all the people who are currently out of work because it's so true. It's almost like the entire city of New York is out of work because it's all ran by the entertainment industry. For the work that you're doing, have you found that there's a lot of people who are mobilizing with you to bring awareness to what's happening? And are you seeing, because I'm in California, so I don't know what's going on out there right now? Are you getting a lot of
0: support? Yeah, well, I will say there's a couple different groups who are doing a lot of great work around this. The Local 802 Musicians Union has been doing incredible work trying to support artists with the Music Workers Alliance, the Freelancers Union, the Hospitality Alliance, the League of Independent Theaters. These groups have done a lot of work to IATSE Local One, which is the Stagehands Union. They've been doing a lot of great work to try to support and help artists, but also just seeing our community come together. You know, I'm a drag artist who works in bars and restaurants primarily. Uh, Every now and again, I got a little theater gig, but primarily in nightlife, but seeing our community rally together to find ways to help one another, to do online shows, to support each other. It's shown that we are a community. Artists rally together to help one another. But I think it's important. We're talking, the Super Bowl was last night at the time. Whatever, Super Bowl, blah, blah, blah. But like, we put so much into like that, which of course, like there's people who are working. There's a lot of union workers, a lot of people who are employed through stuff like that. But we don't so often forget that our theater community, our arts community, our nightlife community, that's what we rely, on. like yes, sports is fun and there are great jobs within that that we need to be prioritizing also. But what do we do when we are sad? We put on our favorite record. What do we do when we're happy? We put on our favorite record. What do we do when we wanna celebrate? We go see a show or we go to a bar to hear music or if we're having a romantic encounter, we go to dinner and hear a band play, or we go to a museum to look at art. Our entire lives are centered around the arts. So why is this the industry that is so often the one that's the last to be thought about in any recovery process? Even before the pandemic, we're always the last ones. We're the first thing to get cut in schools. We're the first thing to be said, oh, it's not important. But it's our entire existence is centered around it.
2: Yeah, I read an article where somebody was talking about, if you look at the salaries of people who are in the administrative part of theater, that they're making so much more money regularly than the performers do themselves. So it would be wonderful to see these different organizations really take note and want to give artists the kind of respect that we deserve because most artists are going from gig to gig and not having a regular job that kind of keeps you going where you've got that regular W-2 that comes at the end of the year. So there is not a lot of concessions for things like a pandemic when that comes up. So I'm so thrilled and so happy to see the work that you're doing to bring awareness to all of this.
0: Thanks, I mean, it's so stressful. So many people outside of our industry are living, most people in this country are one paycheck away from like financial ruin that's and that's you see right. that. In this pandemic, we're all literally one paycheck away. And then you live in a city like New York, which I love. I would never want to call anywhere else home. This is where I want to spend the rest of my days. I love it. But we have a city that's increasingly for the wealthy. So when you have people who are living paycheck to paycheck and they're in industries, whether it's theater or another job that's reliant on gigs, like carpenters, some years they have a ton of buildings to work on and some years they don't. So their income fluctuates, then you throw a pandemic in and it's impacted much more. But a lot of times we don't have the opportunity to have a savings account because we have family or rent that's so astronomical. So we need to be thinking about a $15 minimum wage is great if you live in Montana or Nebraska.
1: Kentucky, etc.
0: But in New York City, $15 isn't enough. Chicago, $15 isn't enough. Atlanta, $15 isn't enough. So we need to be looking at raising the minimum wage raising it based on where you live. So we need to be looking at universal basic income for families that have less than a certain amount of money so they can have support.
1: Which takes me to my next, I mean, I know your story. I've delved into your life on the internet over the past Uh week, and it's been fascinating to me. You know, Marty, you came to New York, you wanted to be an actor, right? You wanted to do musical theater, and then you segued into drag, but you know, it's incredible to me, where your turn came into going into politics. And that's what I want to talk about, and that's what I want to focus on today. Where did that happen? Where did the turn kind of come in your head and you were like, oh, you know what? This is my calling. This is why I'm here.
0: Oh, how do I want to answer that?
2: Well, well, Marty, let me just say this while you're getting that thought together. As I started to look at your story, what I love so much is that so many of us will complain about things and be concerned about things but it sounds like you have picked it up and decided I'm gonna do something about it. I'm not just gonna complain about it. I wanna take action. So well, tell us what made you wanna take that kind of action. I feel
0: like a lot of times people feel like their voice doesn't matter or won't be heard and it doesn't make a difference. We live in this age of social media where everybody's like, I have to have a million followers to be relevant, but that's not true. Whether you have one, follower or a hundred million, you have an opportunity to engage with people about issues that are important. And so even if you're influencing one person to do something good, you've made a difference in the world. And that's a big deal. So I think we need to get away from this notion that like only people with platforms can do something and so from my experience for my own personal because everyone's experience is different so now going from the general to my own experience I moved to New York when I was 17 so I was like a baby when I'm 33 now so my entire like adult existence has been in New York I really feel like I grew up in New York because 17 and 33 are very different so I've had a very complex existence in this almost 16 years. I moved to New York two weeks after graduating high school. I wanted to be a musical theater actor. I love the stage. I've always loved the stage. I've always wanted to live in New York. And I kind of accidentally became a drag queen and that became my full-time job for over a decade. And then through that, like a lot of people, when Trump happened, I wanted to like avoid his name tonight. But when that whole mess happened a couple of years ago which was not like random he was a symptom of a virus that has been a part of our country since before our country was founded he just gave permission to people to Finally, say out loud the bigoted crap that they've always. Well, he gave people permission. But when I heard him on the escalator say all the BS that he said, I was like, oh, that's really scary. Ooh, that's weird. Uh, That's not good. So, this is to answer a question how I got into politics or whatever. So I was joined a show in drag, made some jokes about my pets, made some jokes about Kellyanne Conway, made some jokes about Downey. whatever. The owner of the bar pulls me aside. Oh, you're alienating our straight clientele. Okay, well, my audience is for everyone, but this is a queer safe space, so I don't really care. And then he said, and you're making me as a voter feel uncomfortable. So I said, oh, so are you profiting off of queer people and voting against their existence? I didn't really like that question, so I quit on the spot. And as I was walking away to another bar to ask to move my show, which I did in the same night, move my show to another bar because I'm a crafty queen and I gotta pay my bills. As I was walking to the other bar, I thought to myself, well, you had people in your audience. And even if you were saying it in a joking way, some kind of light bulb had to go off. Either as a young queer person, hearing somebody on a microphone stand up for them and be in their corner, Or as somebody who was possibly, I don't know if there were Trump supporters of my own, but if you were, the issues you're voting against might have been humanized in that moment and you could have said, oh, maybe I'm wrong. And I realized I had an opportunity because of my drag platform that I was given to do something more. And so I started getting really plugged in in local politics. And now it's, here we are running for city council, which I never thought would happen. But it's important because representation matters. The LGBTQ caucus and city council is all term limited and they're all cis gay men, nothing against them. They're all wonderful guys. But we've never had trans representation or non-binary representation in city council. So my friend Alessa Crespo is a trans woman of color who's running for city council in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. I'm the first non-binary candidate to be running for city council. And that's a big deal because those voices have never been heard at the table. So it's a big deal.
1: It's a huge deal. It's so progressive. And I give you so many props for wanting to do this and want it. But what was really the catalyst for you to want to run for city council what is it about city council that lit your fire
0: well city council i mean it's different in every city i know la city council you guys only have like 20 something members right like i think 25 or 26 i could be wrong on that number and there is city council like each district is like two or three hundred thousand people it's like the size of a congressional district it's crazy (laughs) Um, but like my district i'm running in has one hundred and forty-one thousand people which is That's a lot of people. But the city council is a big deal because in New York City, we have a 51-member city council. And the city council has a huge say in the budget, which is $92 billion. That's a lot of money. And they have a lot of say in zoning. And right now, zoning is happening in a way to benefit developers and super rich people, which displaces people from their homes, displaces small businesses, restructures an entire neighborhood or community. And so we need to have zoning that's reflective of the needs of the community. And we need to have zoning that's reflective of providing housing for everyone. We need to have zoning that's equitable. I'm here to represent the working people of the city, Need a leg up. Jeff Bezos is doing just fine. Can we say that again for the people in the
1: back?
0: <laughs> he makes three hundred million dollars a day. But meanwhile, people in our industry are
2: struggling.
1: Str- they don't know how they're going to pay the bills.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, they yeah. can't pay
1: the bills. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. They absolutely can.
2: As a Young person who's decided, because I still consider, I know you're saying 17 to 33 is a big difference, but that's still very young. So as a young person who's decided to take on these challenges, there are other people that I'm sure want to do something too, but then they get scared. They're like, well, I don't know anything about politics. Where do I start? Where do I begin? Where do I plug in? Like, what advice would you give to those people who are thinking, you know, I'm tired of complaining. I want to do something. Where did you start? What advice would you give?
0: I don't know shit about
1: politics. (laughs) (laughs) You just kind of learned on the spot.
0: I learned as I went. Yeah. And I'm still learning. But that's the thing. Like politics should be accessible to everyone. And in our country for so long, it has been traditionally for cisgendered, wealthier, white, straight men. I mean, that's who has benefited greatly from <laughs> everything in our country. So I didn't know anything.
2: So what'd you plug into? Did you call a friend? Did you go to the center? Did you, like, what did you do to get started to go, I want to do something?
0: Well, I had friends who were in politics. A few friends of mine who were on city council. You get to know people when you live in New York for a long time, and some of them go on to be on city council, whatever. So I knew people in politics, and so I would just ask A lot of questions. And then I just plugged in. So for people who might not have the leg up of knowing someone on city council to give them advice, ways you can get involved, whether you're in New York City or wherever you're viewing from, find out what are the local organizations in your area, whether it's the local Democratic club or it depends on what you want to do in politics. You know, Democratic club, how petition for people and phone bank for people and get out the vote for people and do forums on local candidates and then you know there could be like an immigration justice center where you live maybe that's what you want to advocate for or maybe you want to work on halting solitary confinement and releasing seniors and nonviolent offenders from prison so you want to get connected with a prison reform group or women's reproductive rights. So find out your local Planned Parenthood political chapter. Or There's so many outlets you can go into, but a great kind of starting place to find all of these different areas is find out Either your local Democratic club, or if you identify as a socialist, your local DSA club, or you identify as an abolitionist, there's probably an abolitionist club near you. There's so many ways to be political, so that would be, I think, the first place to look. And also call, find out which candidates are running where you live, and volunteer for them, or find out who is your local representative, and if you don't like the things they're doing, hassle them, call them, email them, or if you like them volunteer for their next campaign and those are great ways to meet other people as well who can help connect you too
1: so i wanted to say to our audience please feel free to ask a question you can type it in and so i have a question for you marty it's crazy that sports fans and largely commercial performers can enjoy and profit from the super bowl why can't we have substantial outdoor performances in nyc given the incredible talent pool that we have
0: Was that an audience question yes sir so, Jimmy Van Bramer, who's an amazing council member who has endorsed our campaign for city council, he just recently passed a bill in city council that will start allowing outdoor performances in March, I believe it is, which is great. But we need to take it a step further. And so, a plan that I have, because hopefully Broadway will come back sooner rather than later. But, (laughs) while we're waiting for that, that might not be until the fall or later. We know it's not going to be this summer. We know no matter what, it won't be this summer. So, March or April through September or October is a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So, our city needs to have contracts. Our city and our parks department have a lot of theater spaces, a lot of theater venues that are outdoors where we can do socially distant outdoor performances. So the city needs to have contracts with our League of Independent Theaters, which is smaller theaters, with our Actors' Equity, with Local 802. So we can do either small indie theater shows or something bigger like... Lincoln Center, the Met. But we need the city to have contracts to allow these theater spaces in our parks to be utilized so people can have ticketed events, so people can go to work.
1: That's very exciting. I have this question, and I think it's very important. Can you tell us a little bit about... What being a New York City Council member entails and why it is such an important position.
0: New York City Council, or a city council, is probably one of the most powerful governing bodies in this country because our budget is $92 billion. Our budget is larger than some countries' budgets. Our police budget, which is way too big, is larger than some countries' military budgets. What? So the city council is important, not only because of budgeting, which we're talking about and zoning, which we talked about earlier, but we also have the most segregated school system in our country and school district three, which part of it is in my district is the most segregated school district in the city because the parent groups can say, oh yeah, we're progressive. We just don't want those kids coming to our school. It's NIMBYism, right? It's the same as we have people experiencing homelessness and we try to get them housing and people Mm -hmm. say, oh, yeah, 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 I get them housing, but over there. Right, right. Right. So city council has an opportunity to change this stuff, but we need leadership willing to do it. And In this primary on June 22nd, we have an opportunity because of term limits, term limits in the city government. We're going to have a new mayor. We're going to have a new comptroller. Out of the 51 council members, 35 of them are term limited. So that's a brand new council. So we need people who are willing to stand up and do the morally right thing and not backpedal and hold our elected accountable to say, well, you said this when you were running, go do it or at least try to do it. So city council is important because there's 9 million people, probably more, but 9 million people who live in New York City and we can work to make change here on the city level work with our legislators in Albany to make change, and then people pay attention to what happens in New York City and in Albany. So if we make really progressive change here, that's gonna influence other cities to go ahead and do it. We're being outshone by Austin, who just defunded their police department and put that money back into community to house the homeless. We can do that here. We have so many vacant buildings in this city that the city can put people in for housing, not shelters, but housing, giving people an opportunity to live, get them housing, fund social services, fund addiction services, fund mental health care services, because everybody experiences housing insecurity for a different reason. So house people, find out why they're experiencing homelessness, and then get them the help and the resources they need. And I'm so tired of people saying it can't be done. With $92 billion, yes, it can. We're just funding the wrong shit.
1: I have another audience question for you, Marty. How do you think we can get more government funding for the arts in the schools that we're talking about? And would that be in the realm under the umbrella of your position?
0: Yeah, arts education is so important in schools, after school, funding nonprofits who do arts programs. Arts education certainly impacted me as a little queer child (laughs) who needed an outlet, (laughs) But arts education is not like, yes, it was helpful for me as a queer child, but arts education helps everyone. It helps everyone and should be accessible for everyone because a lot of kids might not know that there's something they're passionate about. A lot of kids may not know that they like pottery or they may not know that they like painting or graphic design on the computer. Or singing, or playing the drums, or whatever. A lot of people they might not know. Maybe their art is building, construction, carpentry. Maybe we need to fund that in schools too. You know, they used to have in schools all the time the home ec trade stuff. You know, they don't have that anymore. Right, and
1: carpentry and, yeah, yeah. and right home ec and all yeah. that stuff.
0: Because everybody has different passions. We should be promoting mm-hmm. that in schools. And so what we can do is really allocate budget, which yeah, goes back to budgeting what we were talking about earlier. We can fund these programs in schools and we can also fund after school programs summer programs and then with discretionary funding each city council member has discretionary funding and participatory funding as well we can fund nonprofits in our districts that provide these services outside of the schools also but there's no reason this can't be in school we're funding police in schools why can't we fund
1: arts in schools Absolutely right. And it's always the first thing cut, right?
0: Yeah, our priorities are very skewed. And so we need to rethink and reshape and reimagine what we can do. And it can be done. We just need people to be loud about it and say, I want artists, you know, like, but not just say it, but like, call their representatives, candidates who are going to commit to that.
1: And it's not only the city council people and everybody that you're going to work with, because you are going to work with them, but it's all of us opening our mouths and calling and emailing and saying, this is what we want. We need this. Our voices can be heard.
0: Theater is so expensive now. Let's put through a program where we can get, I know there already is a program like this, but let's expand it where we can give kids in our public schools access the theater for free. Let kids see shows. Let kids go to museums and experience art.
2: You know, you've been very active out in the forefront doing a lot of different things that is making impact on society right now. And one of the things that I recognize that you've done is you did a lot of work with defunding the police and being an activist in the way of protesting and so on and so forth. Can you speak to there's a lot of people who get confused about defunding the police? And I know that you have a very large platform and there's a lot of young people that follow you as well. So can you make that clear for people to explain what that really means? Yeah. So I know a lot
0: of people are turned off by the term defunding the police. I am not. (laughs) But if me saying defund the police makes you feel a little away, look at it as I'll use New York's budget. We have a $6 billion police budget, which is actually with pensions and lawsuits and overtime closer to $11 billion. We spent, in the last fiscal year, $600 million in police overtime. And we, the taxpayers, are paying for lawsuits against police. brutality, when-
1: Lawsuits, brutality, all that so, kind of stuff.
0: So why are we paying for that? That should come out of their pension. Hmm. That should come out of their money. You did this, you pay for it. Why are we paying for it? So when we talk about defund, we should look at it as... We should be reinvesting reinvesting in the communities that are most impacted by police violence and we have to look at it as police violence is very real the PBA the police benevolent association in New York endorsed Donald Trump so everything we're seeing on camera now has been happening for years we're now seeing it on camera in real time so we have to to take action and say, okay, why do we have a six to $11 billion budget when our arts education programs are cut? Why do we have that budget when our sanitation department has been cut? When our transportation budget has been cut? The summer youth employment program, which helps 75,000 kids, primarily black and brown kids with jobs in the summer was cut. So that's what we're saying reinvest put that money into housing put that money not every 911 call needs to have 25 cops showing up who don't know what to do except for pointing a gun put that money into social services mental health care providers who are trained for mental health care situations addiction specialists who are trained to help and handle people who are experiencing Addiction. Put it into child services. Put it into homeless services and food services. So when you have a budget that's inflated, we just got to bring it back down so that things are equitable. It's not equitable right now. We should be funding counselors in school, not armed police who are gonna tackle a nine-year-old girl and Mm -hmm. pepper spray her. We need social workers who can see that there's something going on with the kid. Find out what it is and get them the help and the support they need. Maybe a kid's acting out because there's something happening at home and they need a little help. So our priorities are way off base here. So that's what we're saying, we need to reinvest in our communities.
1: You've been very, very open about your past struggles with and I, I hope it's okay to talk about with alcohol and, oh, yeah, um, and about the yeah, and and addiction. And I think with struggles with your addiction and you just put it out there in the world and this definitely helps people relate to you on another level. When you talk about and you touched on it before about getting real counselors out there to help people with addiction and to not throwing them in jail for this and getting them the help that they need. You can talk about it firsthand because you've been there, you know, and you've been sober a long time. But I think your story is fascinating, but I would love to hear what your idea is about moving forward and what your plan is to do.
0: I'm one of the lucky ones. I got sober. It will be 10 years next month, which is-
1: Congratulations. Congratulations. That's in 10 years. Amazing.
0: It's, I can't believe it. I am am an alcoholic and drug addict in every sense of the word. As a candidate, people are kind of like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a drug addict, okay? What about it? But by the grace of a God of my own understanding, which everyone's experience to recovery is different. I'm one of the lucky ones. I would not be alive today if I didn't get sober. I would not be here today. Whether from an overdose or getting hit by a car or suicide, I would not have made it. Mm -hmm. So thank God I got sober. Some days are better than others, but for the most part, we're doing pretty good. But not everybody has an experience. And we have to remember that this is a disease. And I can't tell you how many political meetings I sit in on. And I hear the way people talk about people experiencing addiction where I'm just like, hi, okay, I'm going to step in here. Do you think I look like an addict?" And oh, no, 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 no. Well, I am. You don't know someone's struggle. You don't know what someone's been through. And the disease of addiction is a disease, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or money or overeating or starving or over shopping. Addiction is addiction. It comes in so many different ways. And it is a disease. So why are we criminalizing a disease if somebody says i've got diabetes or i have cancer we don't throw them in jail we say well let's get some help let's get you some help let's get you your insulin let's get you your chemotherapy so we're throwing people's lives away and this primarily impacts black and brown and immigrant communities, because those are the communities that are over-policed, then you're throwing someone's life away. Instead of saying, oh my goodness, okay, you're on drugs. Instead of spending $300,000 a year on putting you in jail, which is like what it costs, we're gonna spend some money to get you into some rehab. And when you're done this rehab program for either 30 or 60 or 90 days or whatever it takes, we're going to ask you, okay, Do you want to go to college? Is that the plan that you want? If you want to go to college, we have to make the City University of New York free because it was free 40 years ago. And then the city wanted to make some money. We have the resources in this city to have CUNY be free, City University of New York. So put these folks who have gone through this program through school. College isn't for everyone. You don't want to go to college? What is something you're passionate about? What is something that you want to do? And this goes back to the trades we talked about. So let's build relationships with our unions to set up specialized apprenticeship programs. If there is a small program like this in the city, but let's expand our relationship as a city government with our unions. And their apprenticeship programs to allow people who have gone through these rehabilitation programs to get an apprenticeship, to get a job, to give them access to the middle class, which is going to help them with a long-term, sustainable job that's not only going to impact their life, but it's going to impact their kids' life and their kids' kids' lives because it will build. It's generational. So instead of throwing somebody's life away at $300,000 a year, let's give them a life where they can try to get sober and give them opportunities that they won't have by incarcerating them.
1: And maybe do something that they're passionate about. I I think many addicts are addicts because they're not doing what they want to do or they have no access to it. I think that's a brilliant idea. I love it. With with organizations like the Lortel, let's hire people in the theater, whether
0: it's backstage or front of house or whatever. Let's build. It's about self-esteem. There's so much that's encompassed in it, but we're Mm -hmm. throwing people's lives away.
2: You touched on drugs and sober living and incarceration. So let me ask you, because I know one of your platforms, and if you can talk to it, about decriminalizing marijuana use and also sex work. Tell us what that means for you.
0: Y'all, the Lortel Theater is going in tonight, okay? <laughs> <laughs> we are. We didn't that's right. why we're here, that's what we want. Y'all showed up thinking we were gonna talk about the Georgia McBride show. was no, a great no. show at the Lortel, my friend Matthew wrote it. Amazing but, uh, show. Uh, great show, love Matthew, dear friend. But we are diving in. So first of all, sex work is work. Sex work is work. And a lot of times, people do sex work for a variety of reasons, survival, income, or they just like it. Who cares? It is work. And oftentimes, the folks who are targeted and incarcerated for sex work are Black and Brown and immigrant communities, and more so are trans Black and Brown and immigrant communities, which thank God they just in Albany repealed the Walking well Trans Bill finally. But... We still need to decriminalize sex work. We also need to decriminalize and legalize marijuana. And we need to give access when we do legalize and decriminalize and people can start selling it. We need to set up Our campaign released the first ever, I think, reparations fund program that I don't think a city council has ever done that. We need to be giving opportunities to our BIPOC community so people can open small businesses, sustain small businesses. And part of that is when marijuana is decriminalized and legalized, the communities that are impacted the most by mass incarceration from marijuana need to be the first ones, the priority of who gets licenses and distribution rights. And they should be the ones who are making money off of this. Not like some white rich ass man who comes in and is like, I'm gonna open all these dispensaries. No, let's get the first licenses the people who have been most impacted and we need to release everyone from prison who is in jail for it and expunge their records and get them jobs in You're this
2: industry.
1: Especially somebody that was just arrested for selling a small thing of marijuana. I mean Some of those people are in jail for years and years and years for.
0: But meanwhile, these Wall Street guys are let out of jail in a minute.
1: Yeah, of course. I have a question from the audience. This is from Ken. I love your activism and compassion for others. If it's not too personal, were you raised in an environment where family or friends were involved in this community, or is this something that you just brought on your own?
0: Oh, I have a complicated relationship with my family. I love my family very much. I grew up on a farm in Maryland, and my parents are lovely and did the best they could. And I love them. And my brothers and I don't really have a relationship with one another because we don't share the same values um, politically. That's the experience I think of a lot of people in this country. There's people that we love very, very much who just don't align with our values and so i have a good relationship with my parents i don't have a great relationship with my brothers and that's okay because family is i love them very much but i also have a family that's been chosen that i align spiritually politically emotionally and I can show up for blood family that I don't always agree with. I'll always show up for them, and I'll always be there for them. But I don't have to give myself to them fully, or feel bad when I need to put boundaries because I feel uncomfortable. It's okay to put up boundaries, and I think a lot of people in this country deal with that. There was that great story of that young girl who called the FBI on her mom. She saw her mom at the Capitol and had to call the- her out, right. I don't know her full story, but I imagine that's probably a very emotional thing to say, oh, what the hell is my mom doing? And have to call the FBI. So I was raised By two parents who taught me to love everyone unconditionally, that all people are created equal. And for some reason, my brothers took a different political path and that's okay. That's on them. And I wish them well. And I have chosen siblings here in the city who I love very much.
1: That's our family that we choose. That's the family that we choose. Our circle is what we choose. You were extremely vocal and right in the trenches for the Black Lives Matter protests. I mean, I was following you on Twitter and you were right out there in the middle of it and helping raise money to get people out of jail. You really blew me away with the work that you did during the protests and the money you were raising to get the people that were being arrested out of jail. We need to talk a little bit about that experience and being right in the center of it and what you did to help. Sure. I fully recognize that I am a queer, non binary
0: person who has had unusual experiences with other human beings because of that. But I also recognize because of the color of my skin, I could take off my eyeliner and put on a baseball cap and pass in a crowd without anybody. I can pass as like a cis white guy and be fine. So I have to recognize as a white person, as a white ally, that there have probably been times in my life that I might have said something that I would be horrified that I said, you know what I mean? Like, I think we're conditioned as white people to not recognize when a microaggression happens or not recognizing something is offensive. So I personally have really made it a point to, in the last couple of years, really take the time to pause and listen to my black and brown friends. And if I suck up, own it, amend it, and learn to do better. If you're not willing to grow from it, then you're contributing to the problem. So when the summer happens, it's like I said earlier, but this has been going on since before our country founded. Our country is <laughs> stolen land that was built by people stolen from their land. And people who look like, me have profited from it so now we need to show up and truly be allies and listen and learn and grow and amend and so when all these protests and marches happen we have to take those streets how many people are going to be murdered before we like it was just Sandra bland's birthday yesterday you know she should be alive but she's not because systemic racism has allowed her to be murdered and it just be another news story that we move on from. So, yeah, protesting was a no-brainer. I was arrested, but I also recognize I was arrested and I was able to go home the next morning. But we're taking to the streets because how many people have encountered the police and they don't get to go home? So I have a lot to learn still. And I hope to continue to learn. And I think every white person should take the time to learn and not put that burden on our Black friends, but to do the work to learn.
1: But you are doing the work, which is why I think you are a wonderful politician and why you will be on city council. I will open my mouth to make sure you are. Thanks. It takes each of us working together. It's a collaboration.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, they say, when you know better, you do better.
1: That's a Angela. yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: And so you are doing the work to learn and to listen, and that goes on both sides of the aisles. Everybody who encounters people that don't necessarily look like them, but lead their lives with a good heart, need to take the time to learn more about each other so that we can make things better, period, for everybody. Every and yeah. kids say, period.
0: <laughs> on,
1: period. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and Joy has told me I don't want to hear from my white friends when this was all going on. A text from one of my white friends that's saying, oh, oh my God, what the heck is going on? Like, that's not the thing to text to your dearest friend who is of color. That's not. It's having conversations and trying to affect change, which is what you're doing, which is what we're all trying to do, which is why we're having this conversation today, to help try to have a conversation, to help heal, to help move on. I have another question from the audience, from Est Rhodes. There are so many issues to tackle, Marty. What will be your first plan of action when you are elected? And I say when you are elected.
0: Oh, man. I mean, there's so many things. COVID recovery for our small businesses and for the industries we're talking about is obviously at the top of the list. But on a broader scale, I'm really excited because I know some of the other candidates are excited about this too. But I want to have a three-part Green New Deal. A Green New Deal for our city as a whole. A Green New Deal for our NYCHA housing, which is our low-income housing. And a Green New Deal for our public schools. So a three-part Green New Deal, which will build long-term, sustainable union jobs, and these jobs should come from the community. We're working on NYCHA housing, or we're working on water plant, or updating buildings, or the school system, then those unions should hire for those projects from within that community and give people long-term sustainable union jobs that are gonna set them up for life. It will help combat climate change at the local level. Right now, we have seven years (laughs) to figure out climate change, but we can start doing it here in New York City. There was a plan that was put through a couple years ago that said, okay, in 2023, we're gonna take all this data and evaluate, and then by 2029, we're gonna do this. It's too late. It's too late. So we need to have a three-part Green New Deal here in the city. It will stimulate the economy, it will give people jobs, it will give people access to the middle class, and it will update the infrastructure of our housing and our schools and our city at large to make us one that is green, environmentally friendly, and working to alter uh, the climate crisis. And by doing that in our city, I hope that influences other cities and states to do the same thing.
1: And for our listeners, how do we help you?
0: Oh, my goodness. We do phone banks and text banks every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And we do lit drops on the weekends as well. So we need help. So, you can go to our website, Marty4manhattan.com, M-A-R-T-I-4manhattan.com, sign up to volunteer. And uh, yeah, it's super fun. We have a good time. So Marty, what I'm going
1: to do is I'll reach out and you'll get me that information and I'll put it right up on our website. Oh, yeah. So, oh, when.
0: A little chat right here. That'd be great.
1: And we'll put it on our website as well, because I think it's very important for New Yorkers to hear Marty's platform, to hear what the changes that he wants to make in New York, and to have our first non-binary city council member. So we want you, Marty. New York needs you very badly. Thanks. Oh my god. The, wor- the world needs you. With that, you know, the hour has flown by. An hour. Not- oh my god. I know, but we've learned so much. I'm <laughs> so grateful for you to be on the show and to break it down for us. Because well, I think a lot you, of man. I think a lot of people just don't know. And thank um, you both
0: so much. And I'm so jealous you. of the LA warm weather. Oh my gosh, enjoy that. Uh- <laughs>
1: Well, that is our show. I'd like to thank our amazing guest tonight, Marty Gould Cummings. Next Monday, February 15th at 7 p.m., John Andrew and I will interview Michael Potts, who just appeared in Netflix's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And then on Monday, February 22nd at 7 p.m., Joy and I will be speaking with two-time Pulitzer winning playwright Lynn Nottage. And we are so honored that she is making time in her schedule to be with us. I am obsessed with Lynn Nottage. And so is Joy. If you enjoyed our show, please like the video, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Thank you so much again to our guests. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak gogo public relations and our social media is managed by mia radia special thanks to nancy Herbitz, alana Canty samuel and maura levines live at the lortel is recorded online by brian fong abacus entertainment while theaters are closed we hope you will consider donating to the covid19 emergency relief fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company thank you so much for listening